Hello, and welcome to our special Veterans Day Cambridge Stronger podcast episode. I'm your host, Amy Weber, CEO of Cambridge and host of Cambridge Stronger, a podcast where culture counts and values matter most. At Cambridge, we are truly grateful for all of the individuals who have and currently do serve this country. It has often been said that freedom isn't free, and we certainly do not take our veterans for granted here at Cambridge. To show our appreciation, we teamed up with our Diversity, Equality, and Inclusion Committee and Advisory Council to spotlight a veteran Cambridge financial professional. Joining us today is financial advisor and founder of Lotus Financial Partners, Lucila Williams. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. I'm really excited. Yes, um, I have been looking forward to this podcast since I heard you uh, accepted the invitation because I know your story is really a unique and fun one. So let's start off where I always do. My favorite question, how did you find yourself or find your way to the financial services industry? Share your journey. Yeah, I think like many, it was a very circuitous route. I, uh, I actually grew up in rural Oregon and did not know a single soul with a financial advisor, so I didn't even realize it was a job that you could have. Um, I was in the Army as a Korean linguist and, and wrapping up my five years, and I had been recruited by a company that, that focuses mostly on the military. And I was really interested in it, but I, uh, right at the last minute, said, you know what, I'm not ready yet. I want to go get my degree. I want to use up my GI Bill, finish some things, and then I can come back to it. So I did that. I came to Denver and finished my degree. And right as I was uh, kind of in this pivot point in my career, I was self-employed as a mortgage broker, knew I did not want to be in that business long term, and actually was going to use my GI Bill to go to law school. So I had applied and I was in the two week window waiting to hear whether I got in or not. And the um, regional manager from the company called me up. They had me in the database tagged as a potential advisor and said, hey, at, at some point you had considered this as a career. Are you interested? And I almost was like, no, I'm, I'm waiting to see if I'm going to law school. Um, this is, you know, this chapter has closed. And I sat back and looked at it and I ended up meeting him for lunch as, as we do a recruiting lunch. And I evaluated law school, becoming a lawyer and becoming self-employed as a financial advisor and looking at myself and my strengths and also my deep desire to be self-employed and independence. I'd already been self-employed. Um, it was like, I was going to invest several years of my time, the ROI on law school um, was not there financially or the happiness ROI. I realized that I didn't know a single happy lawyer um, and that I was doing it more just to, you know, continue my education, not really because I was passionate about that. So I did get into law school and see you Boulder and I turned it down and became a financial advisor. And I always say that was the, aside from going independent, that was my second most important decision, but that was uh, the most important decision of my career to not become an attorney and become a financial advisor. And I think it set a wonderful trajectory for my career and also my life. Happiness ROI. I love that. We have that in common because I also thought law school was my future and uh, shifted gears. And it's interesting. I just spoke to a couple of young G2s at an event, a Cambridge event recently there. In one case, it was a father. In the other case, it was a mother. But they brought him up and said, hey, this is, you know, my child. And the questions, uh, a question from the two of them, because that other thing happens. The introduction happens a lot. But in these two cases, both of them said that they thought 
law school was their future until they started to get involved and wanted to know, they'd heard my story, why I changed my mind as they were thinking about whether they should change theirs. And um, I look back and, you know, I feel like we do a lot of law school-ish things. We're not practicing law without a license necessarily, but we have the exposure to be able to, I mean, we're still reading a lot of documents and interpreting a lot of information, you know, just not in a courtroom and in front of, you know, whatever journey in law school somebody's envisioning. So I think it's a, it's an interesting, there's a lot of people have the mindset of law school that shift into financial services, I think. And some of them still have their JD and went to law school and ended up uh, and, and invested before they figured it out. Yeah, I, I think I made the decision at the right time. But I think there is, there's a similar mindset. It's the idea of giving advice for a living and guiding people to make better decisions. I think there's some things in common. But I mean, I'm sure, Amy, as you did, it was really, I realized I would be fighting someone else's battles and not and that it was going to be very transactional. You know, one, whether you're doing uh, contract law or litigation, it's it's one contract to the next. Um, whereas as a financial advisor, I was like, I can be in someone's life for years now, decades, almost 20 years. So it was a complete different type of collaboration and that feeling of really being part of the end result. Whereas as an attorney, I think you're just cranking those hours and those contracts and those cases. Yeah, I love that. I absolutely love it. So your website talks about your mission. It's to help your clients live more secure, free, and meaningful lives. Tell the listeners how you came up with that mission and why is that important to you? Yeah, for years, um, I was asking my clients about their values. And um, when I sat back and looked at the impact of our work, I really don't think it's about investing. Um, I think investing is a tool to get us to an end result. And I don't think that end result is a financial plan. Um, I think that end result is a feeling. And when you look at Maslow's hierarchy, I mean, ultimately, and especially if you're working a lot with women, making sure that that foundation of security is in place is the job. It's not a, something ancillary in my mind. It is the thing I'm here to do is help them feel more safe and secure. And I believe once they have that box checked, they can now be free to make choices that are broader and more adventurous and more really kind of push their own edge more once that security is taken uh, into account. And then ultimately, I think anyone who's been doing financial planning and really talks about talks with clients about what they want from their life, lives, there's almost always some aspect of meaning. They want to give back. They want to create a legacy. They want to, even if it's just within their own family, they want to create you know, security for the next generation. There's almost always some, once you get those basic building blocks out of the way, you can think bigger and say, how do I want to impact the community? And I work with a lot of very mass affluent, probably the higher end of the mass affluent spectrum. So these are not wealthy people, but with good planning, they will often end up with a multi-million dollar legacy if we do everything right. And I get the opportunity to say, what are you going to do with that? Because we can see this very clearly if we if we live on plan that you're going to end up with a, um, a nest egg. How are you going to leverage that for your own meaning? And a lot of times that can be a very inspiring conversation. Yes, I want to take care of my kids. But beyond that, you know, these charities are important or my alma mater is important or something or my church is important. Um, so I think those three layers, if I were to really distill down what every client says to me one way or the other is I want to feel safe and secure. I want to have the freedom to make the choices and not have money be a financial burden in, in that decision-making process. And then finally, I want to be able to live a life of meaning defined by me, the client. Um, so it feels universal and 
it keeps the focus on what I view to be the central aspect, which is creating that that mindset, not so much about the investments or the specific products, et cetera. Does that translate for your business into any generational planning? Do you find that that approach helps you transfer in? You know, I know a lot of us in a certain age group are now referring our parents as quickly as we are our children, like we're going both directions. So it, it could be, you know, one way or the other, or you've got all three in, in some cases potentially, but are you finding that your approach kind of facilitates that? Yeah, absolutely it does. Um, this afternoon, actually, I'm uh, sitting down with a client child. The client has been my client almost all of the 20 years. They were actually my first six-figure account, which they didn't know at the time. Um, almost 20 years ago, I thought it was the biggest thing that ever happened to me. And you acted um, like, oh, I do this every day. Oh, I do this every day. It's no <laughs> problem at all. Uh, they now know that and we giggle about it. Um, it was as green as they get when uh, when they came to me. But their children, literally, she was um, pregnant with her second child when I met her. And now I'm meeting with one of them today and one next week in that kind of finance 101 conversation. Like it is a rite of passage for most of my clients' children to ultimately meet with me and really do that kind of financial education up front. Um, additionally, they know when their kids get married that they're expected to do a discovery experience. This is part of like premarital financial counseling, getting them on the same page, like identifying potential challenges. Um, and we've had a lot, a lot of those people have become clients. Um, and to your point, we have been referred both up and down the spectrum. So we have had someone come in kind of closer to my age and, you know, they're referring their, their parents in and then definitely working with the getting married kids or the going off to college or graduating from college first job folks. Um, and we make it really clear to our clients that we are here for that. Uh, that's not something you have to pay additional for. That's awesome. I, I really like that model, I think, in the end. Even if the industry's uh, projection of the amount of wealth transfer that's going to take place over the next 25 years, it, even if it's a small portion of what's being projected, there could be a lot of loss if we don't start to engage. So I think you've, you're on the, the right course from my perspective. <laughs> Well, and I think teaching them to be good stewards. I mean, the scariest thing that we all hear about is the 18 or 20 year old that gets a million or two and blows it all and now has not set themselves up for life. So helping them think about money differently before they have any um, is really training that next generation of hopefully um, wealth builders instead of wealth spenders. Yes, yes. Great idea. So you mentioned earlier that you became an advisor shortly after finishing your time in the army as a Korean linguist. First of all, thank you for your service. It's, I we guess we can't say that enough. How did your time in the army translate to your role as a financial advisor and a business owner? Yeah, I think that there's a couple things. Number one is I'm a very entrepreneurial person. And after five years in the most controlled environment that the U.S. has to offer, I will say it made it really clear I wanted to be self-employed. Um, so I think that was on the on the slate already, but it really clarified that. But in terms of skills, um, I think the idea, I, I'm huge on building a, a process-driven business. That's probably one of my superpowers is taking complex things, simplifying them, and then making them scalable. 
Um, that I think comes from the army, the idea of SOPs, standard operating procedure. You don't do anything in the, in the army without a, an SOP. Um, and after action reviews, this is a concept that I've taught to advisors as well. Um, something didn't, you know, you don't just say, well, I won that case or I, I got them to sign on the dotted line or I didn't or whatever. It's not that it's what occurred in that scenario. And how can we improve upon it? Or how can we take what went well and kind of document it and make it the way we do business? So in, in our practice in Lotus Financial Partners, it is very much mistakes are an opportunity to build new process, to solidify what we're doing right, and to fix any gaps that we identify. So after action reviews, AARs, um, SOPs, and then also just kind of that, uh, of course, it, there's a work ethic that comes from being in the military and, and the, um, you do whatever needs to be done. Um, it is not one of those things where you go, oh, well, I'm done at the end of the day. There's that obligation. I think loyalty is another piece. Um, you know, I have a deep loyalty to my clients, as does my team to their clients. Um, so the idea that we're trying to do right by our clients as human beings and that that's the most important thing. I think that also is in the military values as well. Yeah. Every time I talk to somebody who spent some time in the military, um, I can see from leadership to how they built their business that there is a lot of things that translate over into their world. So great segue into your comment now about how it taught you that you wanted to be entrepreneurial. And you mentioned earlier that independence was one of the biggest decisions, good decisions that you made. So let's talk about independence a little bit. How'd you start and what got you, you know, there's a lot of um, anxiety sometimes around that decision of going out on your own. How did you decide it was time? Well, I think this is such a great conversation because it comes back to mentoring. And as a young woman in not only a male dominated industry, but in an organization that was very specifically male centric, um, the idea that I could go independent was very intimidating. I knew no independent advisors because I was in a captive firm that really kept you in the bubble. Um, I knew really no way out of the equation. And I think I was about, ultimately, I think I was 36 when I went independent, but I had this idea in my mind that when I grow up and I'm 40, like something magical is going to happen. I'm going to have the financial resources. Somehow I'm going to, you know, be smart enough and, and confident enough to do that. And, um, I was fortunate enough to meet a female mentor who to this day is one of my dear friends and mentors, Tammy Robbins. And at the time she was working in the role of a recruiter and she did it in the way that I think is the very best way to do anything, whether we're talking about, you know, working with our clients or recruiting financial advisors. She was a true advocate for me and she helped me understand the landscape of what's out there. What are my choices? What are my options? Obviously, she was representing one particular option at that time, but she did not approach it from that way. She also, you know, she recognized my fears. Remember, we come back to security and freedom and meaning. She recognized that I had a lack of security and understanding, like, how I could do this. I thought um, you had to be a quite a bit different or further along in your career than I was. And she helped me understand that, that wasn't true and that, that um, independence did not mean being alone. And that um, I could have that partnership in a healthier way than I had in the captive firm that I was at. And so that mentorship was everything for me. And it was still a really hard decision to make. Um, took the leap. And of course, everything went splendidly, all in hindsight. Um, one of my favorite, I, I, I'm going to get the quote wrong, but you'll understand this. Mark Twain said something along the lines of, I have endured many things in my life, some of which actually occurred. Um, it's that idea of the anxiety and the fear. And I, never in my life have I had more of that than 
that transition independence. Turns out none of the things I was concerned about actually occurred on any level. Um, and despite being from a captive, about 80% of my clients ended up coming with me and we were off to the races and have since built a quite a large team um, at, in the independent world. So I think I can look back to that moment and say a female mentor took me under her wing, made me feel safe and helped me take a leap that I would not have made on my own or definitely not as quickly. Yes. I love hearing the stories about what Tammy did in her past lives. And I know she continues to do that for many here on our team now for the listeners. So I'm glad that you brought her up. I absolutely love the statement you just made. Independence does not mean you are alone. We could probably use that in so many different ways. So let's talk about not being alone. You just segued really nicely into how'd you build your team? What'd you start with? And then what does it look like today? What do they, how do you empower them to help you with your your vision and all this great success that you've had. Yeah, it's really interesting because I did not sign up. You know, independence and freedom are really high on my values list as we've kind of probably figured out already. I did not set out to become a manager of advisors. So ultimately, I'm a very reluctant uh, uh, practice manager from a multi-advisor standpoint. So each time somebody came in, it was like, ah, nah, nah, I don't think so. I don't think that's going to work. And then me falling in love with them as an advisor and a person, um, me also feeling that there was not another place that they could go to do business the way that we do business. So that's the thing we kind of were working on fleshing out our vision um, for the practice. We Our mission is, as you mentioned, to help our clients build more secure, free and meaningful lives through advice-based financial planning. But our vision is something along the lines of really being an oasis for female financial advisors to do business in a more aligned way and in partnership. Those words are not wordsmith, but um, I did not, I, each time someone has looked to join our practice, they've kind of come knocking on the door. And each time I felt like they didn't have a place where they could do that if I didn't open the door. So um, we've done that. We now have six advisors, including myself. We've got nine people on the team. My husband is the only male. They, they joke that he's our token man. Our, um, our, their your work diversity. Husband. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, and he does so many things as, you know, he's helping them pick out which tires to buy or, you know, buying, um, you know, uh, wipers for their cars and, and doing all sorts of things to really advocate for them in a way that an all-female financial advisor practice needs. <laughs> so he definitely plays an important role. That is really admirable. It is needed out there. You know, we hear a lot of times that female clients, not always, but many times choose to work with female advisors. Yeah. And I do feel like that kind of carries over a lot to female advisors. So we have a few others at Cambridge that have a, uh, you know, perhaps coming from a different place in their hearts, but have a vision to be a support for other female advisors. And some of them are all female um, as well. And I just think it's, we don't have enough of them, but that might be, you know, one of the greatest successes I think Cambridge can toot the horn across the board for our advisors is while we might still have only moved the needle a couple percentage points over the last 10 years on how many they are, how successful they are is pretty incredible. And, you know, I think we've gone from like 1% or less doing over a million in revenue to 6%. And there's lots of people between 250 and a million. It was so bad 
when we started the women's efforts that I used a $250,000 number because nobody was doing that. Mm-hmm. So that community and mentorship and, and all of the things that you're offering is really helping women build successful practices and businesses here, which is pretty awesome. I feel very proud of it. It's, um, it's one of those things like I do think who we are pulls us into what we do a lot of times. And I think I was reluctant to really identify female clients as my marketplace. I felt that was exclusionary. I felt like, you know, coming from the army and mortgage brokering and obviously being a financial advisor, I was like, no, I need to work with everyone. And I realized that who I am serves them well. And I bring something unique. And I think that's what happened with Lotus is that Um, even though I was reluctant to do it, we offer something that isn't available and creates something special. And uh, I didn't strategically set out for that, but it became really clear that that's got to be part of our long-term mission or we're kind of leaving something on the table that we could have impact in. And it sounds like you're still very willing to work with anybody. It's just that you you discovered you could help more in certain segments, which makes sense. Your website actually mentions common question you get from the clients is, will we be okay? You talked a little bit about this earlier, but how do you and the team really reassure the clients? Walk us through the actual process. Yeah. So advice-based financial planning, let's kind of step back. Um, Basically, that's my definition of how we do business, which is advice first and implementation as needed. So every client starts with an advice engagement as a fiduciary. And then if appropriate, we manage their assets and help them with insurance, et cetera. So that's kind of our basis. And then when we actually do the work, it's a six meeting planning process. Initially, we go through those specific agendas. Um, One of the things that we do that kind of speaks to this point is we redo the plan every year. And there's definitely uh, those out there advisors, and I've been asked this many times, why would you do the plan every year if the plan worked and the situation hasn't changed and the goals haven't changed? And my answer to this question is the clients don't remember to feel safe that security piece. And I see it all the time. We go into the financial um, financial plan review and we rerun the plan and I see their shoulders, which are up by their ears. And by the end of the process there, we see that the, you know, Hey, you've got an 85% probability of success. We actually increased some of your goals. We've built more padding in here and you're still okay. And you see their shoulders drop and they're like, basically they say, I forgot I was okay. So I think the planning process can really, nothing materially changed from one year to the next in that particular example, and it happens all the time, but reminding them good savers are often anxiety-ridden people. And if we can view it as our job to make those people feel safe, keep taking the actions that make them successful, but don't do it out of a place of fear, do it out of a place of optimism and help them understand that you're absolutely on your track. We're building in some boundaries to make sure that you're safe in this, but, um, you're going to be okay. So reminding them every single year and, and getting to the point where they, and oftentimes it is one spouse or another that is more in that direction, but it just is one of those moments of celebration because the vast majority of people are on track once they've been our clients for a while. So just bringing them back to that realization so that they can live their life from that place instead of fear and worry. That sounds like a really productive way of managing that. And I have to believe that sometimes if you were just to ask a question, has anything changed? So this is what I I remember from past years. I have a better process now, but as a young person, has anything changed in your life? Yeah, no, not really. Right. You get a questionnaire, you're saying no, but until you get in and have that actual dialogue and then you're like, oh yeah, I did forget that this changed or that changed so much. I, and we, 
Yeah, we go meet ahead. with our clients. Yeah, sorry. We meet with our clients three times a year. For, we have a couple different service models, but that's our, our kind of most active. And, and we have specific agendas, risk management, wealth management, financial plan review. But to your point, Amy, it is actually just to get in their life. And yes, we're going to cover those. We're going to make sure their whole financial life is in order throughout the year. But it's to catch them making, making decisions, catch them in movement. And just by seeing them regularly, we're able to do that so more, much more efficiently. Yeah, that's great. So one thing we are learning from you, or I am definitely in this session, I knew you were very successful and doing a lot of things, but you're one busy person. Um, aside from serving your clients and running your business, you're also the founder of the Intentional Advisor, which is a practice management consulting firm. Tell us about that. Yeah, I think very much like I've explained working with female clients and also advisors, this was um a business or a pursuit that pulled me in that direction more than I chose to go that direction. I was in a study group actually with several of my AssetMark fellow advisors that use the AssetMark platform, and we were doing a show and tell. And you know, we're like, "Hey, uh, let's talk about how we do business." And it was my turn, and I had a binder, and I, we went through our planning process and our deliverables and our emails and our worksheets and our things. And the guys around the table, it was all all gentlemen. Um, they're like, "Ah." Uh, you don't actually do business this way, right? Like everybody says they do business like that on their website, but you don't like, this isn't real, but this is just like a framework, an idea. And I'm like, oh no, it's exactly how we do business. This meeting's coming up. Here's your, you know, here's your scheduling email. Here's your agenda email. Here's your worksheets. Here's, here's how we're gathering that information. Here's how we're moving through the process. And they were like, oh, well, none of us. And they were all amazing advisors, very successful financially they're all very more successful than i am um they're like yeah we want that but we don't know how to do that or we haven't carved the time out to do that right and we don't haven't had the discipline to do it so they asked me would you coach us can we pay you uh to coach us on how to do this and i said yes but we have this oba thing right that we have to have an outside business activity for compliance purposes i said okay if you will commit to hiring me I will set up the OBA and uh, we will do this. So um, they did. And I had to come up with a name, the intentional advisor. What's funny is now I, I found all my scribbles of me trying to come up with the name and the idea and all of that. It's really fun to, to see. But I moved into a hotel for a week and I cloistered myself and just I wrote down everything that we do in our business, I, everything in consulting I teach is what I actually do in my practice. So I literally wrote a manual, it's about a hundred page manual and I put together all of our workbooks and then I created um, the actual curriculum to take them through. And still all these years later, it's about six years now, we still follow the same basic um, format in teaching advisors how to do it. So it was one of those things where the advisors asked for it and I said, you know, this is something I'm super passionate about, so yes. Um, and it's, it's also comes back to the impact and meaning, you know, it's like, I've got my hundred or so client families I can serve and, and Lotus can do a few more because we have six advisors, but there's only so far that that impact can go if it's my fingers directly related to it. But by helping other financial advisors build practices that are process driven, profitable and aligned with their values, um, I can have that impact hopefully magnified. Yeah. 
That sounds like that's a really, it's a way of giving back to an industry that's given you so much. And yeah. as much as you love helping people from a client perspective, why not? Um, if, you know, you've got the, the capability. So what I'm most impressed with was that a group of very successful male advisors asked you to do that and admitted <laughs> that they needed help. So that's awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's a real thing. There's a humility that comes from that. Um, yeah. And I have to say it, I've really enjoyed partnering with Asset Mark in terms of asset management. And I feel like the advisors I have met through that, like many of my Cambridge fellow advisors, are like-minded in their willingness to learn and desire to serve their clients and really being open to whatever it takes to get better at what we do. Yes. That is, I believe, here at Cambridge, why I, I know I'm biased, but I do believe we have the best financial <laughs> professionals working with us that are in the industry. So, um, and you're definitely one of them. Have I failed to ask a question that when you were thinking about doing this podcast, you had, you know, this message that you really felt like you wanted to get out to, you know, our listeners can be everything from seasoned advisors to the point we were just talking about to younger people potentially who are in college trying to figure out what they might do with their lives and everything in between. But if you had to, you know, if you had a message out there, I don't want to fail to make sure it gets included because I didn't ask the question. The message I would share for young, mid-career, and probably older folks as well, um, is that this business can be a calling. This and, and most of us come to this business, I think, because we want to help people. Most people don't become independent financial advisors really to maximize income. There's, you know, there's all sorts of programs to do that in finance, but we, we come here to help people. And I think that many of us run into the wall of salesmanship and quotas and some of the toxic traits that our industry has. And that often lives in the world of, of advisors just starting out. You know, you have to kind of go through the paces and a lot of those things, it really strips the soul out of what we do. And I know I got to the point in my career where I was literally ashamed to say the company that I worked with and to even say I was a financial advisor because of the implication. That's That means salesman. That's one step above being a used car salesman. I really believe that, that we can build businesses that are truly aligned with our values and our desire to serve, and we can make business decisions and still run a profitable business while doing it in a way that serves the community as a whole. And so if you're a young advisor and you, or, or someone even exploring this and not in the industry as well, there is a way to do business that will make you feel incredibly good about going to work every day. And there's a huge income potential and lifestyle potential that comes from this. Um, I also work with a lot of uh, older advisors who are ready to transition and they realize that the world has changed. They were very, are very successful in a paradigm that really isn't as strong as it was when they were up and coming, that there's a way to help that next generation of advisors who can't like instantly become you after 30 years in the business. Um, there's a way to support them in, in stepping into your shoes by adding processes, by having and actually delivering an, an advice-based financial planning process or, or whatever your process is. There's a way to create those um, tracks or that framework for the next generation that will allow them to have success in the new world that is different than the, you know, knocking on doors or cold calling or stock sales, you know, so many things that existed before that no longer really part of the paradigm. Great message. And you're a great example of all of that for sure. And, uh, you know, I, I'll just reinforce part of that is we can learn from them. 
we have to remind ourselves of that. Um, I find myself as much as any other Gen X or for sure boomer that says, I didn't build my business that way, or that's not the way that we used to do it, or that's not how I got to where I am. And I catch myself a lot going, but please tell me how you think I can do it better. Um, And I think that's important for us to listen to each other. I think we're at a place where there's five generations potentially working in the same companies and industry, and they all have their different perspectives, but together, I think we can be stronger. I absolutely think so. And, And to that point, I think if there's a message to the senior advisors bringing in the younger folks, it's letting them bring new value to your practice. So you may have amazing relationships and profitable business, but are there, especially around planning and technology, are there new things that you've not done? And frankly, you don't want to do, you don't need to do that a next gen advisor can come in and really fill gaps and add value to your existing clientele. I think giving them permission to do things differently um, can really improve your practice and ultimately give you that runway to hopefully go on and retire and feel really good about that as well. Yeah, well said. Perfect. Uh, Great way to end the business portion of our conversation, but I would be remiss if I didn't uh, give you the opportunity to talk about the fact that even though you're super busy and doing a lot of different things, you do have some free time and what do you do to spend it? What's your passion on that side? And quite frankly, how important do you feel it is to have some sort of balance in the life uh, when you're as busy as you are? Yeah, it's interesting because this, you know, you you sent me some questions that I might contemplate. This was the only one I struggled with. The rest of them are really clear in my mind. I'm not good. Neither is my husband. We aren't relaxing kind of people. Um, I I would say we like to create and build things. And so what it oftentimes that ends up being ancillary to our business. We bought a building during the pandemic and we remodeled it. Um, I tend to do the design and my husband is the implementation. He is amazing. And that, but we've done that. Uh, I do landscape design and he, you know, kind of makes it all happen. It's, it's remodeling the house. It's been the building. It can be websites. So really kind of design and build and create is really the theme of a lot of, it's still work by many definitions. We were here yesterday, which was Saturday, uh, Sunday. Um, putting glass indoors and making our office more open. Um, he's amazing in his skill set. So that we are trying to, we did buy a place in the mountains. We're trying to get away a little bit more. I will tell you that I get up there and sometimes I'm writing a blog, but um, trying to find ways to um, be healthy, but we don't, yeah, we don't have a lot of really strong hobbies that you can really point to. He is a big skateboarder. Now that's not me, but that's him. So a lot of times we will travel to, for him to go to skate parks and take my stepdaughter with him. Um, one of the best things kind of circling back to what this industry has given me is I have this amazing group of girlfriends uh, that are in the industry and we will meet up and we will, you know, sometimes we'll spa and sometimes we'll mastermind and we'll do all sorts of things. So they keep me grounded and oftentimes doing some of the most interesting things in my life is because we scheduled it um, and we come together as colleagues and as women. So that's been really valuable to me. Isn't it interesting how regardless of what the event is, if it's on your calendar, some of us disciplined people actually do it. Yeah. Um, and that's the only way it's going to get done. That's the it? only way. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Tammy, we were scheduling how we're going to uh, factor in a little time around WIFS this year as we try to do when we're going to, when we know we're going to be at the same conference so we can, you know, just get some one-on-one time, um, which is really hard when she's an executive and I'm doing a bunch of things as well. It's, but it's so valuable. And it's one of those things that kind of refreshes you, keeps you from getting burned out, keep you excited about what you're doing and why you're doing it. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, it, says, it sounds like you're using your free time to be creative, and that's awesome. So congratulations. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for sharing your story and your journey with us today. I love learning more about you, and thank you for trusting Cambridge. Absolutely. It's been such a pleasure, and this transition has been everything that I wish wished for in, in coming out. For those that are listening, I, it's just been a couple of years since I joined Cambridge. Um, and it really has been that values aligned community of like-minded advisors that I was hoping for. Perfect. I'm glad that you're, uh, I'm glad that we are who we say we are. <laughs> it's Isn't unique. That yes. It's yes. unique. So, um, we're glad that you trust us and, and have chosen to, you know, entrust us with a small portion of your clients, you know, the responsibilities that we have. So thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Cambridge Stronger. I invite you to listen to my podcast episodes where I have candid conversations with genuine inspirational financial professionals and leaders within this fiercely independent financial services industry. The best of the best, the strongest of the strongest. You can listen to my podcast on Apple Podcast, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the Podbean app. We are Cambridge Stronger.